0: Welcome back to the Gentlemen's Dojo! Dojo. Wow! We did it! insane. did it! Yeah. Yeah. Love it! Love it! Love he came it! Love it! We are back! The Gentlemen's Dojo! Couldn't be more excited today! Couldn't be more about excited! This, this, is great. this is good! And I'll give credit where credit's due! Yeah! Gary Cannon made this happen. He pulled I certainly the trigger did. on this. Unbelievable! Can uh, I say
1: before we jump into this? Sure. Congratulations to you! Your special aired on Friday! Numbers look good, and I watched it. Very happy. Sure, you were happy as well. So, good for you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks to to
0: everybody that. that watched Tell the Damn Joke. Yep. I appreciate it. It is available to be streamed on Showtime, so you can watch it again or tell your friends and check it out. To my left, Gary Cannon from Detroit, Michigan, and right here
2: from California, Orange County's own Patrick.
3: Keen, We, we oh. were going to... okay.
0: I'm oh, sorry. You sorry. can introduce yourself. So, in. It's okay. Sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was excited.
3: Horrible start. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Horrible <laughs> start. Whatever. Yeah. Patrick be Keen is here. Yes. Today, oh. we are excited. Jason Zinneman. He's an author. Yes. New York Times. Uh, he writes for the New York Times. He does stuff with Time Out New York. He is uh, an incredible writer, and he just wrote a book called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. We're going to give him a proper introduction in a second, but he's calling in today, yep. and we're going to discuss... The book. Um, we all read it. All of us read it. So excited!
1: And uh, we want to thank his publisher, Harper Collins, for sending us advanced copies of it because it just came out this week. It's on sale today, Tuesday. Yes. So it works. I I got to be honest with you. I'm not a reader. <laughs> <laughs> no. My my wife was busting my balls saying, "I can't believe you're taking a book with you out of town this weekend. That you're actually <laughs> going to read this book." Yeah. And I did. I read it. It's a great read. 300 pages. From cover to cover, yeah, and I was just intrigued
0: from the get-go. It's a thick book, yeah. It's one of those where if you're at a Hudson <laughs> Booksellers, you're like, I'm not taking that on the plane, it's too bad. <laughs> But I'm telling you, I picked it up. Same thing on the flight. I was like, All right, I'll start reading. Flew by, yeah. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. We but-
1: both we both read our copies, and then we gave our book to Patrick. Yes. Yes. And, and you-
2: looks good. the timing's great on it because he just introduced uh, Eddie Vedder uh, at some award show, right? Didn't, didn't David Letterman... The, was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh! He just did it with his beard and everything. I and guess so Aaron's well. part of the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: we love it. Because when we ask him to jump in, he never does. Yeah. He never does. Yeah, then he, <laughs> He's, he's, he's going to want the royalty thing. for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's my money? Bojo's uh, getting bigger and bigger. But did you see Letterman? Uh, David Letterman was walking around New York City a couple of days ago. TMZ caught him. He has this scraggly, long, Santa Clausy beard. Doesn't even look like him. Yep. Just absolutely crazy. But... Our guest is on the phone right
0: now, calling all the way from the East Coast. All right, let's give him a proper introduction. He writes for the New York Times, he's written for Time Out New York. He is an incredible author, and we are all three comedians that I don't necessarily would think that we're going to sit down and curl up in front of a fire and read a book, but we all read it. We all (laughs) loved it. We were all texting each other while reading it, how great it is. Jason Zinneman, thank you so much, Jason, for calling into the dojo. Welcome to the Gentleman's Dojo.
4: and this is a great introduction. I appreciate it very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, we got to tell you, Bud, it was a great book. It was a fantastic read. Not only that, wow. but there are other comics that I've talked. To. You know, I was talking to Colin Jost the other day. I was on uh, who's on Weekend Update and uh, David Parker, another lampoon guy. And I just mentioned that I finished this book, and they all go, "Oh, the guy from New York Times." So you are definitely well known. I get you've you've covered comedy though in the past via New York Times. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I've been covering, they, they, they started this new position about five years ago, uh, and I'm the first, uh, comedy critic for the times and, uh, I've been doing for about, uh, you know, I've been doing it every other week for five years. Well, I'm and, still waiting uh, on a
0: review for for Sullivan and Son, which was canceled two years ago. So
4: <laughs> we're
3: we're
0: hanging tight on I'm that, Jason. I'm
4: getting around to it. I'm getting around to <laughs> it. Steve, in <laughs> fairness,
0: Jason it. only reviews comedy, so Jerry, that would be the key up, point uh, here. Up. There you go, shut up. Uh, Jason. We were all floored by this book. It was so insightful. It was really great. I mean, you really peel back the curtain, and it's it's extremely. Detailed and nuanced, you really get into the semantics of everything, and 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 I just we we want to start off because we all collectively talk. How did you come upon the subject to write this book on Letterman?
4: Um, well, first of all, I'm just incredibly flattered to hear you guys say that, and especially because you're comedians, and you know, so I, I, I it's it, it, it's, an, it's uh, it, you know extremely uh, humbling. I appreciate it. Uh, I began as a Letterman nut as a small child. I mean, I've been watching Letterman almost since I started watching television. And uh, I, uh, you know, would, would watch him religiously And before I even thought like a critic or a, uh, or a reporter. Um, and then um, when I got the job as a comedy critic and I was, you know, talking to a lot of comedians in New York all the time, you know, I realize what I guess should be obvious, but is that so many other comedians felt the same way I did. And he was obviously a huge influence on so many people who are in the scene today. And I, I mean, I knew someone was going to write this book. And, um, you know, what I worried about was that Letterman had such a long career, you know, 33 years, so many different stages of it. And people who are... Younger than me, only really know him from the end of, for the end of his career, and people who are my age or older who saw his work on the morning show in the in eighties, the um, because it's so hard to find those shows, um, especially compared to say SNL um, or you know Seinfeld, which are constantly in syndication and and uh, you can get on and DVDs. I kind of felt like even people who saw those shows and who love Letterman didn't. We're operating primarily from memory. Um, and that the fact that if you talk to someone who loves The Simpsons, say, they really know the difference between the first season of The Simpsons and the third season of The Simpsons. Absolutely. And the tenth season of I mean, they, Those people know in a real profound way that those are completely different shows. Um, where if you talk to a, a Letterman obsessive, and you know, there's a bit of a generalization, that they would generally say, well, there was the NBC years and there was the CBS
3: years. Mm-hmm.
4: And the truth is, is, that within those NBC years, there were several different, you know, discrete periods. And so I began with this idea that, you know, all right, I want to kind of figure that out. And the way to figure that out is to first watch as many shows as I could and then talk to as many people as I could, because, of course, part of what these shows are, are, you know, are who's working on them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll just finish this thought because I'm bad. But, you know, I began this book with um, one Idea, which sort of goes against the grain of almost everything that's ever been written about late night, um, which is that there's this idea that you know it's often attributed to Johnny Carson, who who supposedly said it's all about the man behind the desk um, in terms of how to judge these shows. And you know, I began with the idea that obviously the man behind the desk is, is the most important figure, for the man alone behind the desk, but to really understand how these shows, how Late Night changed, and how Letterman changed, you need to look beyond that, and you need to look at how the show changed, and who was writing for the show, and who was on the production staff. And um, so I began real, even though I, my interest was peaked as a fan, but I began the book as a reporter, and then I sort of, you know, after I finished the reporting, I became sort of a critic. And I, what I'd hope to do is to write a biography that kind of mixes all these things together.
0: Can I ask you what... What surprised you the most um, throughout the, the duration of you writing this book?
4: I was surprised um, at the—I mean, I was surprised at uh, how much his writers had to push and argue him to do the more kind of adventurous, uh, conceptual stuff. That he was sort of famous for. Mm-hmm. Um, that Letterman did really had a kind of irreverent instinct, but he also wanted to be Johnny Carson, um, and those two things were sometimes in tension. And so, in order for him to get to a place where he felt comfortable, really kind of reinventing the form, he needed these figures like Hal Gurney and Merrill Marco, and you know the early writers Max Prof and Tom Gamble and George Meyer. Um, and it was really, it wasn't that they they wanted him and he didn't, but it was that the kind of tension between them is what created this great show.
1: It's also interesting too, Jason, to look at Letterman doing his first guest appearance on The Tonight Show in 78, and then less than six months later, he's guest hosting the show. Like, that would just never happen in a situation sure. today. Never.
4: True. That, that was one of the, I you know I started the book with a series of questions, the things I didn't know the answer to, and one of them was that was how how did how did this happen so fast? Um, and I think there was a kind of a series of things. It was some he had some good luck. Um, I mean I I read about in the book how Carson had a kind of contract uh, battle, and it looked for a second in 1979 that Carson was going to leave, and in making this move to leave, he gained an extraordinary amount of leverage. And you know NBC gave him this massive contract, anything he wanted, and that led to him being able to basically pick who would follow him. And you know there was there was a time when there was talk of Steve Allen getting that job, um, you know replacing uh, Tom Snyder. But but Carson liked Letterman. I also think you know this, the reason I do the I go in the first chapter I talk about his broadcasting career in Indiana is people think that. You know, Letterman showed up in L.A. and then in, he was a stand-up, and then in no time he was on Tonight Show. But by the time he got to L.A., he had much more confidence than an average young stand-up because he had a pretty long broadcasting career. Now, a lot of this was in the radio, um, but he he had developed um, a confidence in front of a microphone that a lot of stand-up comedians didn't have. So, you know, I, I sort of and also it's also really important to note that. When Letterman, Letterman was born, you know his family didn't have a TV set. Um, you know the, the, he, his first dream was to be in radio, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the hallmarks of his sense of humor, um, like his love of language and the way he the way sort of extemporaneous storytelling comes from um, radio.
2: And and your age when that turnover happened when he made the jump from uh, was it NBC to CBS, uh, you, you were roughly were you in high school or college? I mean, it sounds like you were. I, Go ahead.
4: No, go, oh, you, no, yeah, yeah. I was in, in between. In fact, it was the the summer before I went to college is when he started CBS, and I and I went. The my my college started like two weeks after all my friends did, and a friend of mine who was going to school went to went to New York in the second week of the CBS show, and um. You're was, like I mean, the, you're I mean, like I mean, the perfect
2: age where that transition, like that's the ideal yeah. age for knowing both Lettermans, kind of.
4: You know the thing is, see, i really was the ideal age, and it was kind of—you know—some like a lot of most most of my friends were kind of snobby about music. Like they, you know, a certain kind of—you didn't like this band, and you you sucked. If you did like this band, then you suck. I didn't really have that about music. Um, yeah, I was like that with the late night war. You know the uh, the—I uh, mean—in I, I, in the way that like a teenage kid is. You know, the teenage kid is kind of snobby about that. I mean, it, it meant. I had a lot invested back then with Letterman, as a lot of people did. I mean, there is a, I mean, I know you, there is a, um, you know, in the way that like Chappelle, when Chappelle left Comedy Central, he became a kind of call celeb. Or when Conan, um, uh, you know, left NBC, he became a call celeb. Letterman, you know, was like that as well. And um, there was a sense of like this was unfair you know, the way that kind of a young person gets this is unfair, that Letterman didn't get a tonight show, and this is unjust. You know, I'm not thinking of it like in any kind of realistic showbiz way. I'm looking at it from the point of view of a young man. And I, I remember going to New York and feeling like not only did I want to see him, but I felt like this was like a good thing to do to show my support.
1: And Jason, did you have access to him for this book or is everything that you've obtained for the book through just different kinds of sources?
4: I, you know, when I when I sold the book and when I started the book, I had no idea if I was going to talk to him, and I even sort of had this idea that, that the book would be fine if I didn't, uh, if I if I never interviewed him. Um, so because of that, I really reported extensively around him, um, and you know, went to Indiana, went to Los Angeles, um, talked to as many writers as I possibly could. Um, and then he never said no. I, you know, of course, approached him early. He never said no, and, and more importantly, when I asked to interview people who connected the show, they would ask him, and he never told them not to talk to me, um, but he never said yes either. So it wasn't until about nine months after he left the show that he agreed to the interview, and I, I mean, it was almost like I, just, I had kind of him surrounded. You know, I talked to everybody around him, and it ended up working perfectly because by the time I did talk to him, I wasn't on a fishing expedition. Um, and well, and I think I think he was actually, you know, had fun talking to me because it was kind of like, this is your life. You know, I talked to all these people, you know, people from his childhood. He hadn't talked, he hadn't heard from them in a while, so he was asking about them. And um, so, you know, I, I ended up talking to him late in the process and then did a, a lot of rewriting.
1: And, and how long do you meet with him? Is it a one meeting kind of thing? And and is that kind of weird to finally meet this guy and he's sitting right in front of you who's one of your heroes that you've been watching since you were a little kid?
4: Well, uh, the first part, um, they originally said it was going to be an hour, so I was incredibly stressed because I had a lot to get <laughs> accomplished in one hour. And where do you guys and, meet, uh, by the
1: way? Where do you where do you meet him at?
4: I met him at a restaurant on 55th Street and... Um, in Manhattan and it was we met early so there was no one there but the interview actually ended up going 4 hours
3: wow and
4: by the time it, it was the, the towards the end of it the lunch crowd was coming in and it is it is pretty striking to have I mean, I've interviewed a lot of famous people in my career but Letterman is both extremely famous but also you know, remote. He, he's not like someone you see in New York all the time. So there's like a, there's like a hurricane around him when he's <laughs> when he's in a restaurant, um, which which was a challenge to sort uh, to block out. But to answer your second part of your question, you know, while I was a and am a huge fan, um, you know, I sort of feel like once I started in the process, I kind of turn my fan part of my brain off, and then it's a job, um, and then I try to. Approach the subject as a reporter, um, and um, and I've been doing this long enough that um, you know I you know that I that I kind of that that just automatically clicks in. So it's uh, and you know there, there's a
3: downside. That, that's good you
4: that. can do that, Jason.
2: Because I'm 44, I can't do that. If I'd be like, oh uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd be like you know the Chris Farley sketch in SNL. Yeah. Like you're really cool. That other thing was cool too. You know, so that's <laughs> yeah. off to you for no,
4: being no. a professional totally i mean after right afterwards I, I felt like that right afterwards i was like oh my god i can't believe it. Uh, uh, did you and, get a picture with him uh,
0: jason did you yeah, ask yeah. to get a
2: picture That's with so
4: him me. no i definitely did not take a picture with him. whoa <laughs> i would have asked
2: <laughs> for a selfie and then left <laughs> that was professional <laughs> or do you want a selfie <laughs> Mr. Lederman. right
0: right
3: yeah.
4: i didn't did ask for a picture and also i knew i do go I, I planned also going in i i guessed this correctly that you know he, like a lot of comedians, when you when you sit down, they're very serious. Uh, I mean, he was funny at times, but he didn't. You know, he's a very sober. You know, very direct and charming. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I wasn't. I didn't try to you know joke around or anything. But he uh, must have been enjoying
1: and- the interview, Jason, because obviously, if he's allotting you an hour, and then it runs four hours, he's obviously enjoying the banter between you two.
4: He was. There's no, I mean, it's, I, I, and I think the reason it wasn't, some of it was, like I said there was a the kind of, this is your life quality to it. Another thing, which he even said, you know, I mean, as, as in, it was a little hard for me to wrap my mind around this, but he said, you know, look, every day for like an hour, I'm, I've been the center of attention. And I'm going into the stage and it's an adrenaline rush. And you get, I think he even said, you get a kind of addicted to that. Um, and, uh, and then he had nine months where you know, he didn't have that in his life. And I think he still misses that. And this obviously is no substitute, but you know, there, there was a sense of you know, he's going over that time in his life. And I think, that it was, I think he had a good time talking about the shows. Um, and I think, while I don't think he wants to go back and do another show, uh, I think he's, you know, he's a performer. He, he, he feeds off being in front of a crowd. Do you, um,
0: did you hear what his – did he offer any feedback now that the book is out there? Um, did you hear anything from him at well, the all? Book, if he the, book, it
4: the book comes out officially tomorrow. Um, right. Although there, are co- there, there are a few copies of people like you and others you haven't. But, but, uh, he hasn't so, gotten one yet,
0: right? Like I, I'm assuming you, you would give one to Gary and I, but you're going to hold off.
4: <laughs> you, you can, Dave
0: can go buy one. He can go buy his own. He can afford it. Yeah.
4: <laughs> he can afford exactly, exactly. He afford, he. he I, I don't. I I've, I've heard nothing. I've, you know. I have been in touch with a lot of people close to him, and I, I guess a few weeks ago I heard that he had not read it. Um. And uh, so you know. Well, it, it,
0: uh, everybody in the book was extremely forthcoming. I mean, nobody. You know, for every compliment you'd get, you, you'd get something where somebody would peel back the curtain and really let let you into the world, and maybe some folks would consider some unflattering things, which. I kind of enjoyed reading about because you know here's this guy that, you know, he, he seems somewhat jovial on 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 behind that desk every night, but there was definitely this other side to Letterman that you know even as a comedian I had heard throughout the years from other comics that have done the show that you no know, maybe he's not Jay Leno he's not going to come to the green room beforehand and shake your hand and be pals with you and and get to talk to you so it was nice to kind of. Peel back the curtain and really understand not only why those things—not only that those things occurred, but why those things occurred. I didn't know that he had, like, back issues or that he was somewhat in pain, and that A would make sense why you didn't want to— Yeah, sure. Why I didn't want necessarily to, for somebody to come up and smack him on the back or whatever, like, great job, whatever. I I, I thought there were so many things in the book that really got into it. You You did feel like you were backstage. You really did feel like you were— a part of those tapings, I understand, it. but the fascinating thing I loved about the book was how much, like like Merrill and all the writers, really had an influence. Because it's so easy to see the guy on the screen and go, "Oh, he's pulling all the strings," but how much of a team effort goes into getting those shows going, and how much of it is led by those young writers from like the Lampoon or Merrill. But then once that writer strike happened, it seemed like. He was more partitioned from the writing staff, and I—I yep. I, I don't know that—that that to me was kind of depressing. I—it it kind of broke my heart that he would just kind of like have these conduits to have the information relayed to him. That—that that was that—that that to me was the most kind of surprising aspect of the whole book.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it, a late night show. Is is you know every late night show is different, and how it were how it functions is different, and the process of it is different, and. Um, you know, it, with Letterman, you know, you've got this guy at the center, which it all filters through. Um, and then, you know, as you say, after a certain point, he became, um, you know, more remote from the process. And then um, it, it, it did change the show. I mean, part of that is also, part of it is just is stardom. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, he, he has a huge amount of, of stardom. Um, and it, I think he's ultimately a shy. Self-critical guy who's not comfortable, you know, talking to celebrities, which is a weird collection of traits to have in talk shows. Um, but uh, so, you know, I think he got more removed from the stuff. I actually think, though, I mean, what's interesting is that after the strike, or during sorry during the strike, and, and this is 1988, the show sh- kind of pivots, and you know, my argument is the early years. Letterman actually seems like a more normal guy, a more like kind of ordinary Midwestern guy than he really is, and he's much more eccentric. Um, and the show itself is kind of crazier. There's like all these stunts, and there's the Velcro wall, and the 360 degree show, and there, um, and Larry Bud, and all. <laughs> the they there's sort of like what seems like a normal guy surrounded by a crazy show. Then, starting towards the end of the decade, it flips that the show kind of settles down in the sense that. The things that are strange about it have become kind of conventions. And generally speaking, he, um, you know, especially as he gets closer to the end of the run, it, it, it becomes more, there's more talk, there's less uh, ambitious uh, theme shows. But the, the, the subject of the show becomes Letterman's fascinating and difficult personality. And, you know, these talk shows are essentially a combination of comedy and personality, And Letterman had an incredibly compelling personality. And in his own strange, ironic way, over many, many years of night by night watching this guy, I mean, I would argue he revealed who he was. Yeah, Um, You had to watch close. Um, But he he wasn't hiding. You're right. It's striking when you talk to people about how much he was obsessed about health, including himself now. I mean, he doesn't – he's not – these are all things that he confirmed. He, he's a very, uh, this is something, and it probably dates back to his father, who had a lot of health health issues. Um, and his self-critical streak is intense, um, and I think had it you know, sort of echoed around the building. Um, but he didn't hide this from, I mean, I think he wouldn't come out and make that the centerpiece, but it kind of got filtered through a lot of his monologues. And he, his, his obsessions and his compulsions, um I think you know it's interesting now you see podcasts where comedians talk about their neuroses or or they talk about they're more likely willing to talk about their dark and light sides but back then you didn't have podcasts you didn't have you know comedians uh, would would reveal themselves sometimes like in a prior special when he talked about lighting himself on fire or something but Letterman was doing it every single night and I think that was kind of a fascinating period too. Um, and I think he did some, you know, remarkable work. Um, and, and, and he was doing work that essentially does what all great artists do, which is, you know, use whatever form that you happen to have, whether you're a painter, an actor, or a novelist, or, um, in his case, a late-night talk show host, to it, reveal who you are. It,
1: it was interesting too, Jason. And we were talking about this before you joined us. What was great about it is there are certain elements that you mention about him doing the show of certain bits that he would complain about afterwards that he wasn't happy with, that he didn't think went well, and they would go well. And it's great to pull those bits up on YouTube and just see if you can kind of notice the anger that's kind of flushing through his head. During the bit. Yeah. I mean, there was that one great moment where I guess there was that big doorknob and it just kept appearing everywhere. And Merrill put nice. it in the elevator and the elevator door opened and he just got really angry about that. The Taco Bell yes. drive through It's great to go back and look at those clips and just see if you can notice how angry he was in the moment, but yet was able to sell it because he's a performer.
4: Completely. And you can kind of see, like, you know, some of that sarcasm that he has. He's other for. Some of it's got – there's degrees of it. Some of it has a harder edge than others, and it's fascinating. Some of the way – you see that when he treats guests. I mean, one thing I learned going over the press in the 80s is I didn't realize how much of the press in the 1980s about David Letterman um, was about how mean he was to guests, which, you know, as a viewer, I kind of loved his interview. I thought it was really – you never knew what he was going to do, and it was often dramatic and – but there was – people in Hollywood were really scared of Letterman, and they um, – you know, there was a kind of – he – you know, every other talk show before Dave Letterman had this sort of, you know, very chummy atmosphere between uh, show business and the host.
2: We're back to and, it now, it seems like. I don't think any host calls their guests out like a Letterman or an old stern.
4: Yeah, Well, it was interesting. One of my
1: favorite uh, uh, laugh out loud moments in the book was when I guess he had Andy McDowell on the show and she the the, the interview was just bombing, I guess. And then he whispers to Rich Hall, like, can you believe somebody's married to this cunt? And Rich (laughs) Hall was like, what?
0: (laughs) But uh, Jason, I want to ask you, do you think (laughs) did he ever enjoy the success or do you think he enjoyed? In retrospect, he enjoys it now. It just seems like he was he was always kind of competing with himself, maybe, and, and 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 holding that standard and and taking so much. It just seemed like he he was just he just wasn't happy. Do you think he, he there was ever a moment where he truly was, or is he now?
4: He seems happy as right now, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. He seems he seems really and you know he was happy after his son was born. I've heard that, and there was moments like right after the Oscars. He seemed, you know, he seemed happy and winning. And it was moments, but for the most part, I mean, that, the question you asked me is the question I asked everybody who worked on the show, you know, when, <laughs> when, when was he happiest? Right. And, you know, i said this, but every time I asked that question, there was always a long pause. Um, there, uh, you know, the, the, he, that's temperamentally who he was. And, um, and I think that, you know, to the question of working, you know, that, that, that had a, you know, that set a mood. Um, so, um, but I also think it, he transformed it into on screen. is something really interesting. I mean, you were pointing out about the, the talk shows today and, you know, and how sort of ingratiating all the hosts are, we're all very talented people, but we, um, are many very talented people and very great fan, uh, late night hosts. But the, um, you know, it's, it's almost like if you imagine like, say for hour long dramas that you weren't allowed to have unlikable, Protagonists, right that would mean a lot of the great shows wouldn't exist and right now we have a, we have a talk show landscape where hosts aren't really allowed to be jerks um and letterman wasn't afraid uh to have an antagonist relationship with people to be difficult to be complex to be unlikable and i think that's what made it. in a lot of ways he was like a talk show anti-hero and um it made it for fascinating tv
2: yeah that's so interesting, and yet he was so good with like kid guests. With Kit, it was it was he was so gentle, yeah. and and him and him and Johnny were better with kid guests. Now we just crowd it with like, hey, hype this 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 in case the kid says something wrong. But with Johnny or Letterman. Yeah it was you were fine but like, don't
1: don't you think jason here's what's interesting i remember leno started pulling ahead in the ratings during the whole kind of oj simpson thing when he brought out the dancing edos and all that other stuff and he slowly was beating out letterman and i remember in the book it references howard stern came out with that oj simpson t-shirt and yeah. he was kind of prodding letterman like hey don't you think this is funny and letterman said something like i don't think double homicide is funny mm-hmm. but yet leno right. could pull it off in a way because I guess he had this more likable, demure to him, so people like went with that, and it was okay.
4: I mean, that's a, it's. I think that definitely a lot of people, including people on the staff, thought that the show was hurt by not, you know, making jokes about the O.J. trial, which was you know obviously a huge story that went on and on and on and on for a long time. Um, you know, why didn't he joke about that? I mean, one thing about Letterman, and this goes speaks to his sort of like you know Midwestern roots. There is a kind of core, you know, on top of all this. there's a core decency to to David Letterman. But there were things that that he wouldn't joke about um, that might surprise people. I mean, there was one guy he told me a story. I don't even remember if this was in the book, but one of his longtime writers had wrote a joke and Letterman that had to do with a, a death or a murder, and Letterman said, "No, we, we wouldn't do that." And he said, "We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do a joke about the Kennedy assassination," and Letterman said of course he wouldn't do a joke about the Kennedy assassination. And that really took a sky back because the Kennedy assassination was, you know, a long time ago.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And it seemed like something that many people made jokes about. Um, but, you know, there was Letterman, um, you know, and I, he had this sense of right and wrong about these things, which I think seemed, uh, could, could seem old fashioned, but I think also is part of the reason why he had a kind of gravitas later in, in his career. And why, you know, after 9-11, you know, he could really speak with a a certain authority.
1: Yeah, there was 9-11, there was the heart surgery, there were all these, like, little moments within his career where he changed.
4: Yes, yes. I think his later career, I mean, what was interesting about the big moments of his later career, you know, there's some exceptions, but the big moments are when this guy who is fairly guarded and ironic and detached or known for being all those things is willing to be emotional. And that's sort of shocking. You don't expect Letterman to to be emotional. Uh, And so when he is after the heart surgery or his son's born or 9-11, I think it has a greater impact. People believe it. It is because it's interesting
1: because I work over at the Conan show right now, and it's interesting because I just know how that show functions, where it's this open-door policy. People come in, come out. It's just this open house. And yet you read with Letterman, like, towards the end – he was distant with everybody. I mean, you didn't see him until showtime. In fact, there was a moment where I guess him and Barbara Gaines weren't speaking for three years, and he had known her yeah. for a long time. So it's kind of interesting to see a dynamic with this guy who's putting a show on, literally looking at the jokes 15 minutes before the show's about to hit the air.
4: I mean, that that was funny to me. That was funny. But it, but, but it made sense. I mean, it, it uh, it's... It, and that, was, that that started to change after the heart attack. The heart attack. He stopped going to rehearsal after the heart attack. And that was a. I mean, that's one of these things where, where the process of the show changed. You know that they had a that one of the head writers stood in for him. And if and if so, the question is, I and mean, you 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 work with Conan, you understand this better than than the most. If you only um, show him this co- written comedy material soon before the, the, the air and he could say no to things. If you propose something that costs a lot of money or that, you know, you need someone to send a camera somewhere and it gets turned down, that's a big risk. So you, you start to not propose this. I and mean, this is what people on the staff, there's a lot of people on the staff. who are kind of guessing what he wants and they are they're, they're operating out of fear more than anything else because they're not, the process is so strange. And, um, so now, to, in the defense of this process, I think you know what Letterman claims, and I think there's there's something to this, is that you know he she says he realized that you know Leno's monologue was his forte, and he he was a joke teller, and Letterman's um, strength was being kind of extemporaneous and conversation and being in the moment, and the show. Uh, in his, in his late, later incarnations was about this kind of conversation and being off the and spontaneous. And, you know, I think there's a, a good argument to be made that in, in the last in the last years that that is what distinguished him, that these sort of long conversations, which are increasingly, uh, you know, scarce in this, in, in, in this format.
0: Um, did you think to talk to, or did you reach out to Leno at all?
4: I did. I talked to Leno. I talked to Leno. He was uh, he was an interesting, good interview, and he, um, you know, yeah, you know, he he Leno, Leno. He's incredibly friendly, amiable. You know, he's he had a lot of memories about Letterman at Comedy Store, um, and you know, not the slightest bit bitter or angry about any of those. Now, do they? Um, you know, do... I think.
0: Do they get along? I mean, because it seemed like there was, you know, towards the end of the book, there was like where Letterman was compliment, like you were just citing. But is there now that the dust is settled, it was it more just kind of like that's the business side of it? Because they were friends. They start they came up at the store together. Um, are, do you see a point where, maybe, where they maybe they down the line, they would do something together? Or is it just like, you know, it, it's that that's that was a moment in time. They're done.
4: You know, I would have guessed that they would have already done something. Mm-hmm. I, I I I suspect it's real. Um, I mean, if you look at it, it's notable that Leno did not. You know, everybody appeared in the last couple months of Letterman show when he when he was on. When, that when that he, last episode was
2: fantastic. That last top ten was amazing.
4: The last ten, all those last yeah. shows were so fantastic. And if Leno went on, he would have gotten all sorts of great press and attention and stuff. And he didn't. Um, and, you know, the reason he didn't is forget Letterman didn't go on his last show. And, you know, I, Letterman definitely wanted him on. He even mentioned it on one of those shows. Um, so, and, you know, that, that kind of tension have, dates back a long time. I mean, I tell a story in the book about after Letterman's morning show that canceled in 1980. Yeah. Like, this, is, this guy thought his career might have been over and it might have been over. You know, he might not get him a shot. He was home in L.A. with Merrill. Um, at their house, and um, Leno um, drops by with another comedian friend, and you know this is. And he, as soon as he walks in, there's a sense that you know this was not the right, this was not not a good time to drop in. And Letterman said, you know, Letterman thought that he was like you know making lies cracks about the house and this, and it was very, and the whole thing was just a train wreck. Um, so you know, there, there was that uncomfortableness even back in 1980. Um, then, you know, in through the 80s, Leno becomes one of the most reliable guests on Letterman, and, and, uh, um, which, of course, I think made it all the more difficult when, you know, he became, when the Late Night War heated up. There was a sense of almost betrayal. I mean, it, it went from Leno being this fantastic star of the comedy sport that, that Letterman looked up to to on um, late night, you know, Leno was being helped by Letterman. I mean, Leno really got, uh, or you know, got incredible amount of national exposure because of Letterman. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the tables kind of turned. And then, then for, you know, the other point that, I, that was a surprise to me was that, you know, Letterman was being talked about to take over the Tonight Show, not the late night show, the Tonight Show starting in 1980. Even maybe even in '79, when when yeah, when Carson was having contract issues, there was a lot of stories about like who's going to take over for Carson, and Letterman, who had just done guest hosting spots, was one of the names floated in industry papers, and he, he, he his name was floated again, again and again and again throughout the '80s. So you know, I think Letterman really was shocked that that. He didn't get the job. And, I, and, and who, who could blame him? I mean, there was this sense that for years and years and years that he was the heir apparent. Um, so that, that was raw.
1: It was also interesting, too, because Carson appeared on Letterman's show after he retired, yet never appeared on Leno's show. So he's basically kind yeah. of giving Letterman the acknowledgment that, hey, you were my choice.
4: Yes, yes. I mean, you know, what's interesting is, right, who won the late night war? Right, and it depends on what metric you judge it by. If it's if it's uh, ratings, you know Letterman won the first year and a half, and then lost the rest of it to Leno. Um, if it's cr- criticism, um, and you know, who uh, what the cognoscenti think, you know clearly Letterman won. No, I, I don't see it. There's not. No one's writing a big Leno biography right now, and you know all every, all the critics write about Letterman and Let, Leno, not so much. But then there's a third metric, right, which is who got the approval of Johnny Carson, which in some ways is the most important to these right. guys? And clearly, as you say, uh, Letterman won that one.
0: Well, in you know, now that we're heading towards the finish line, this is the one last question for me, at least. What do you think of the landscape today with all these late-night talk shows? Because it seems like once Leno went out. You knew Letterman was going to be gone soon, and and then that was the passing of an era. And it seems like nowadays everything's got to go viral. There's so much competition. Everybody's banging the drum to see who can be the loudest. And I grew up being a huge fan uh, of watching Letterman uh, 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 and Leno. I, I, I would always go back and forth. I'd watch the late-night talk shows. I'd watch the comedians at the end. I mean, maybe it's just my age, but I just don't watch them anymore because I don't enjoy them. It just seems like they're not as enjoyable as they used to be. I think that the mm-hmm. hosts used to... Letterman and Leno, there was a comfortability factor behind the desk. They Nothing would sway them, whereas nowadays it just seems like there's almost a desperation. What, what is your take on the current late-night talk show um, environment?
4: I mean, I think it's like the rest of the culture in that it's fragmented. Um, you know, the, the, the campfires have has broken up into little, smaller fires. And I think the um, there's um, there's some I think there's I think there's actually a, a lot of good work being done. I think there's a lot of talent. I mean, I think Conan is great. I think Colbert does great work. I think you see, you know, then again, in this fragmentation, you see these niches. Like you see, like the more political, you know, if you like Samantha B or John Oliver. They're both doing good work. I think, but I think there's more good talk shows, but there's fewer great shows, mm-hmm. um, and I think that again has to do with, you know, what you said about, you know, these are shows that are not like hour-long shows anymore. They're they're collections of parts that are trying to go viral, and, um, you know, carpool carpool karaoke is you know a bigger deal than the James Corden show, uh, and you know, so what impact does that have in these shows that? They're, they're really, you know, kind of eight-minute-long segments that are carrying these hour segments. Like I think it makes them less—speaking broadly—it makes them often less cohesive um, and and perhaps maybe less ambitious. Yeah, because
0: um, Letterman, like, like you cite in the book, he almost reinvented the late-night talk show by deconstructing what a late-night talk show is or was at the time. They just yep. broke all the rules— and it seems like there's so many now. You're almost kind of waiting for somebody to do that again. Do you have you have you seen anybody bend the rules as much as those those guys and gals did on those first few years of Letterman?
4: I mean, I, there's some people who are doing some 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 really irreverent. I mean, like the Eric Andre show is crazy. Oh, yeah.
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, and you know, I see stuff that he does, and I'm like, this this reminds me of how it felt. I mean, maybe to a young person, as how it felt. But but watching late night. Um, but I think the problem is, is those rules have been destroyed so many times. It's yeah. no longer that radical to mock the talk show. You know, Letterman and perhaps people seeing it now will will not grasp how radical it was out of context. I mean, there they, they really weren't these kind of meta, you know, talk shows commenting on itself. When I mean, there was Fernwood Tonight in the seventies, um, but that would that and but you know after larry sanders and after you know uh between two ferns and and scott ackerman's show and Eric, Garner, there's so many deconstructions of the talk show that i think that the next radical thing will need to be something different i don't know what it is
3: yeah
1: and james corden um, has admitted obviously that people aren't staying up till 12:30 to watch his show so what they're perfecting is doing these bits that people are going to download. And that's why that carpool karaoke does so well for them. Because people aren't watching it traditionally like they did with Letterman and Leno. And and I will say what's interesting and what Steve was kind of getting at, too. You watch talk shows now. It's so different than it was years ago when we used to watch it. I mean, listen, maybe Carson was a Democrat or a Republican. But you never knew because he came out and poked fun at both sides. Leno did the same thing. Nowadays, right. it's all political bashing. It's all this. It's all that. And and for us, I think I speak for uh, Steve and Patrick, it, it does get old. It's not funny anymore is what it used to yeah. be. And I think that's what happened a little bit with Letterman towards the end. He kind of became grumpy, came grumpy against the establishment. And it wasn't – he wasn't the same fun, unique guy that he was 10 years beforehand.
4: Yeah, I think that's uh, – and I think it's uh, – but I think that's, that's a function of how – their, their people are catering to their niches,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, which you see happening in the media. You see happening in television. It's you know that's that's sort of the culture we live in now. Um, and I think you know I think there's one other point which is interesting is that like even what we ha- what we call this genre late night right there, there was something cool about late night partially because it was at late at night. You know it was yeah. it was. Uh, it was like a you know a midnight movies were in the '70s. You know you stayed up late and you saw these movies you kind of weren't supposed to see, and you know when you were young you stayed up late to see this weird letter, this weird show. Now when you're as you say people are watching these shows at nine o'clock in the morning and noon and two, um, they just have a different vibe. This is a point apart from the quality of them. They just they they feel like they're designed to be not to be seen as like a cool late night club kind of thing but something that is evergreen.
1: I will I will tell you this Jason I we have a thought for your next book. Obviously this one yeah. was about letterman. We think you write a tell all about Carson Daly. You missed that whole <laughs> you missed that whole entry into the late night there was not one mention of Carson Daly in your book and I think that he <laughs> needs funny. to be next.
4: It's funny you mentioned that because not a couple hours ago just a few hours ago I got followed on Twitter by Carson Daly. Oh, there you Carson go. Daly. He knows the, the book's up. coming out. I, I said to myself, that guy's still on television? Yeah.
1: I worked on that show years ago. It was the best show I ever worked on. It was great. Well, Gary always says Carson was the greatest
0: of all time. Yes. And he means daily.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, and by the way, here's, here's what we all loved about the book. And I, I'm speaking for me personally. I haven't read a book since high school and this was you forget about how many great moments there were with 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 the Meg girl from across the street I forgot yeah. all about her uh, yeah, it's great. The, the Stephanie Burkett thing like like the the yep. inter like there were so many moments where as you're reading they pop up I'm like holy shit I totally remembered that But
0: where is it you read a book too and you go to YouTube you know when and you when Letterman see it. admitted about his yes. adulterous affair I put the book down bookmarked it went over to my computer yeah. watched the clip the 10 minute clip and then went back to reading it. It was great to- Put like, your pants up. Put, put my pants up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Jason, it was a great walk oh down my memory God, yes. lane. It was an incredible book. I mean, anybody who's a comedy what? fan should go out and read this. Everybody's a Letterman fan. You're going to love this book. It was absolutely amazing. And it was, it was great to see, much like Carson, what a complicated guy. What an absolutely yep. complicated guy, but what a talent.
4: Yep, completely, completely. Well, people can find you on
0: Twitter at Zinneman, Z I N O, M A N, and all the best to you. What What is on the horizon? What you, What are you looking forward to cover next?
4: Uh, I'm t- I'm kind of on a short hiatus because i have to promote this book, and then I'm not going to jump right back into another book. I'm just going to go back to covering comedy, and uh, and I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure what next. How long that, did this but...
0: book take from all your research, everything? Day one to publication.
4: It took in terms of like solid working, like real work, it took three years. Um, wow. I I had, had got the idea before that and done a little preliminary work for a few months. but, but in terms of like really deciding, I'm gonna move ahead. And then working, you know, every day was three
0: years. Well, we cannot thank you enough. We hope everybody goes, up, goes out and buys this book as three comics who do not read. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and two I love of, this recommendation. And yes. only two of them write. That's not you. That you is true. Yeah.
1: I was waiting for your publisher to send the book on tape, but then when the hardcover came, I was a little disappointed. But yeah. I got to tell you, the book comes out today. Letterman, the last giant of late night. Jason, we were also excited when we had this interview scheduled. So I, I can't urge people enough
0: to uh, come out and check the book out. It's great.
4: Well, I'm thrilled to talk to you guys. I've, I've had a lot of fun.
0: Well, next time I'm down in New York at the Comedy Cellar, I'll hit you up. Would love to get get you a beer, and just thank you for an incredible read, my man. This was a great, not only a great book, but one of my favorite interviews, I think, Absolutely. we've done here at the dojo. So thank Absolutely. you so much for spending time with Jason. Uh, All the best, and good luck to the book, bud.
4: I appreciate it so much, guys. It was great talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, Jason.
0: Awesome,
4: okay, Well, well
0: that was Jason. Yeah, uh, get, I mean,
1: get this book. So it's, great, so great. Just when you think you've heard it all about Letterman, there it is.
0: Such an easy read, by yeah. the way, too. But so insightful. Like, really, like his writing staff did not pull punches. They no. really, they really were very honest and
2: good, <laughs> was, just like was, him in the early days. So yeah, it out. exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, our thanks to Jason Zinneman. Uh, his book is great. Letterman, the last giant of late night. Check it out. For everybody here at the dojo, thank you guys for listening. Steve Byrne, Patrick Keen, Gary Cannon. Thanks to everybody here at All Things Comedy, Bill Burn now magical Keep listening. Steve, congratulations on your special.
0: Yeah, it is on Showtime. You can stream it. Check it out. Tell the damn joke. Thank you for listening.